0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Senators and President Donald Trump's impeachment trial posed dozens of questions to House Democrats prosecuting the case and Trump's defense team. The questions ran the gamut from quid pro quos and whistleblowers to the Constitution and an unpublished book. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. So as far as the question phase, are we learning anything new or is it repetition?
0: So far from day one and what we've seen of day two of the questioning, um, what we've seen really are what I would characterize as friendly questions in the sense that the Republican senators are posing uh, questions to the president's legal team. The Democratic senators are posing questions to the House managers Um, all of whom are Democrats. And the point of the question seems to be provide an opportunity for rebuttal for each side, that is to reiterate their main points and address points that were made by the opposite side. And in that respect, they actually remind me more of the kinds of questions you might see at an appellate argument posed by judges who want to actually make a point to their fellow judges on the panel to win them over, as opposed to the questions you might see at a jury trial from jurors, where the questions usually reflect questions that are actually on the juror's mind, that they need answers to before they can get comfortable reaching a verdict. This seems much more rehearsed and coordinated and with an aim to allowing the lawyers to make particular points that the lawyers want to make, as opposed to addressing what's really on the mind of the people asking the questions.
1: Why doesn't the Democratic senator ask a tough question of the defense team? Why don't they get some of those questions that we hear them talking about when they come out of the chamber?
0: So that's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about it as well. And I think the best answer I can come up with is that they don't want to provide the opportunity for the opposing side to answer the question in a way that is beneficial to the side answering the question. It's similar to when you're a lawyer at a trial and you don't ask a question you don't know the answer to, and you don't ask an open-ended question to a hostile witness that allows the witness to give an explanation that really destroys the point you wanna make. So I think that's what's going on. It's a very strategic calculation. And I said, again, I think it reflects the political nature of this process and how different it is from a regular trial.
1: There was one question, from senator Rand paul of kentucky that chief justice john roberts refused to read he said the presiding officer declines to read the question as submitted and this was a question about the whistleblower that was something that roberts
0: has not done before yes as i understand it the reason not to read the question aloud was because it may have named the whistleblower so that's obviously a controversial perhaps Um, unlawful thing to do, to name the whistleblower who's entitled to anonymity. And so I think it's understandable that Justice Roberts would have paused, uh, certainly, and then decided not to read the question. And I would imagine that there are conversations going on behind closed doors about the appropriate way, perhaps to honor the spirit of the question, without in public naming this person.
1: Well, it's always seemed odd to me that many Republicans have pushed to have the name of the whistleblower, even at this late stage where it doesn't seem to make any difference who the whistleblower
0: was. It is striking that there would be any discussion at this point about the whistleblower, but I think it's in line with some of the arguments from the lawyers and the questions both yesterday and today. Today already, there have been a couple questions about The process and the rules surrounding the issuance of subpoenas in the House, suggesting that those subpoenas by the House as part of the first oversight and then the impeachment inquiries were illegitimate, Um, and perhaps then to set up the argument that all the evidence and testimony that then flowed from the issuance of those subpoenas should somehow be disregarded. Um, So I find it puzzling Some of the subjects that the Senate is spending time on, Uh, so I would put in that category some of these sort of attacks on the process and the issuance of subpoenas in the House, and also the whistleblower complaint.
1: Does it seem as if Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz has gone beyond what he argued? that these uh, charges against President Trump, even if true, don't rise to the level of impeachment. He told senators that presidents could not be impeached for legal actions they believe were in the public interest. Where does
0: that come from? I'm not sure where Professor Dershowitz came up with the precise language and contours of the argument that he made. It certainly isn't something that's born out of the Constitution or any laws, I think he was really trying to make a logical argument, but he didn't do it well, frankly, because it's so extreme that it can be rebutted quite handily. I think the better argument, and perhaps the one that he meant to make, but went too far sort of in the moment. I think the better argument is that on the facts presented, even if senators come to the conclusion that what the president did was wrong or reprehensible, that it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And that's an argument that is one I expected, frankly, the lawyers representing the president to spend more time on because it doesn't require them to get bogged down in the facts. It doesn't require calling more witnesses, because if you accept as true for purposes of argument that the allegations in the articles of impeachment are true, you can still argue, but it doesn't rise to the level of what requires impeachment. And you, ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, are the ultimate arbiters of what rises to that level. Your decision can't be overturned by a court. It's your decision, and you're accountable at the ballot box. But you're not going to be overturned on this legal question of what's an impeachable offense by any other court of law.
1: I've been talking to Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School, about the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. So, Jessica, the question of witnesses has dogged this trial. And at the beginning of the week, it seemed as if there might be enough senators to vote for witnesses. But that seems to have changed. Have you seen anything during the last few days of questions... That would indicate why the senators might not want to hear from witnesses?
0: I don't know what's happening um, in private conversations behind the senators' closed doors um, and among the senators along these lines. I imagine that this argument we were just discussing about, um, even if you accept the facts as alleged as true, still it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense or you shouldn't Uh, vote to convict him here, um, that that would be the argument that might cause senators to vote not to call additional witnesses. And so perhaps that is um, what senators are thinking about. But of course, there are all kinds of political considerations that may be dominant here, um, as opposed to what I just laid out, which is more of a legal analysis. It may be a political calculus that they need to move on and carry out other business in the Senate and that their constituents are tired of hearing them debating impeachment. It may be a political calculus having to do with support from the president. I don't know. Let's say
1: during the vote for witnesses, it comes down to 50-50. Can Chief Justice John Roberts break that tie?
0: Yes. He is the presiding officer of the Senate in the context of the impeachment trial of the president of the United States. And so in that role he has the authority to break a tie if there's a 50-50 tie, much as the vice president of the United States would during normal proceedings of the Senate when there is a 50-50 tie. So it is an intriguing thought experiment to imagine that there is a vote perhaps on Friday about even calling any additional witnesses or calling for any additional documents as a general matter. And what if the Senate is split 50-50? Would Chief Justice Roberts be casting the deciding vote on that general vote about any additional witnesses or documents, which then if that were carried by 51 votes and were followed by specific votes on calling specific witnesses or calling for specific documents. So for example, a motion to call John Bolton as a witness, how would Chief Justice Roberts vote if required to break a 50-50 tie on that specific motion? So again, he does have the authority as I understand it, whether we'll actually get to that point or not is another is another question.
1: Speaking of John Bolton, since the revelations about his manuscript have come out, now we've seen that the National Security Agency sent him a letter saying that his book contains classified material. What happens next?
0: So there's one process for getting pre-publication uh, approval. Um, from the national security agencies for this kind of book. And that has a route that would require, I think, as a next step for he and his lawyers um, and publishers to attempt to negotiate uh, with the national security agencies over what's in the book, what they deem to be classified, what perhaps could be taken out to satisfy them. And that would be sort of a process um, that they would undertake uh, sort of on the sidelines, if you will. If that breaks down, there is the possibility that he could go to court, I suppose. Um, But I would imagine that he would try to avoid that, but that's there as a fallback. But then we have the separate track of interest for the ongoing trial of executive privilege, which is really separate from this pre-publication review um, of the book that is going on right now.
1: If people have already testified about some of the things that are in the book, That kind of material, that's already out in the public domain, can it still be claimed that that's classified or that that's subject to executive privilege?
0: So I'm not going to speak to whether it can be deemed classified because that's a separate analysis. But on the executive privilege, the fact that much of this information is already out in the public domain really weakens the claim that it is still covered by executive privilege because one of the factors that is taken into account in determining um, whether something is protected by executive privilege is the ongoing need that the executive has to keep it secret. And once something is out there in the public domain, it's hard to make a good argument that there's an ongoing need for secrecy because it's not secret anymore. The executive privilege is a qualified privilege as opposed to an absolute privilege, and so it can yield and does yield when the need for things to remain secret that over which executive privilege has been asserted has dissipated, um, and when there is a very strong comp- need um, for the disclosure of the information. And so in the context of the Senate impeachment trial that's going on right now, there is a very, very strong case to be made that the Senate has a need to hear from John Bolton about his communications with the president, the substance of which essentially are already out in the public domain, and The need is great precisely because of some of the arguments that the president's lawyers have made about the lack of direct evidence of the president's intent and of his actions even, and John Bolton's testimony, it would seem, could go precisely to those areas as to which both parties are essentially agreeing there is a vacuum of other direct uh, evidence.
1: The president has said many times that he might have to exert executive privilege over matters, but he's never actually done that. And we've seen, as I mentioned, testimony. So
0: has he waived the privilege? So arguably he has. Um, That's another reason why I think a claim for executive privilege to prevent John Bolton from answering questions in a Senate trial about his conversations with the president about Ukraine would be a weak claim of executive privilege. Because as I said, Uh, One of the things courts take into account in evaluating claims of executive privilege is the ongoing need to keep the information secret. And so we could characterize what the president has done um, by himself tweeting and talking about conversations with Bolton and about these matters. We could say he's waived the privilege Um, We could say uh, that he has, by talking about it, also just made it weaker any claim that he has, that that the privilege needs to be kept secret. Um, These are different ways of sort of talking about the same concept, which is that um, it's no longer a credible claim that he needs to keep those conversations with John Bolton secret as a matter of, of national security or protecting the internal deliberations of the president.
1: Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Jessica. That's Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School.